Kamasta starta gyana prapajantain devata tam tam nigamam astaya prakritya niyataswaya. Those, who those whose intelligence has been stolen by material desires surrender unto demigods and follow the particular rules and regulations of worship according to their own natures. Umajana Trimanandasya, Janajana Salakaya, Chakshuran Militanyena Tasmai Sri Gurave Namaha. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my spiritual masters opened my eyes with the torchlight of knowledge. I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him. Those whose intelligence has been stolen by material desires. So in this day and age, we don't need to look far for those kind of individuals. <laughs> Practically everyone in modern society has had their intelligence stolen by material desires. They're desiring to advance in so many ways their, their uh, material position. And they practically have no interest in their true spiritual nature or advancing spiritually. Unfortunately, in this age, even the concept of approaching any subordinate God, when, when Krishna is speaking here of demigods, he's speaking of, of those sub subordinate, subordinate, subordinate agents who are in charge of various facilities in this material world. The heat, uh, the heat and light of the sun, uh, the uh, the water uh, that nourishes the earth, so that we can have uh, that we can have nourishment. Uh, the wind. I mean, so many demigods are there who control the affairs of this material nature. Unfortunately, even even an understanding of those subordinate gods is lost to modern society. They practically have no, no knowledge of, uh, of the demigods. It's probably appropriate for us to, to look, at, look at some analogies so we can, can see this in perspective because basically speaking, we're, we're out of touch with, with the full, with the actual workings of this material world in, in Western society. We have little concept of the fact that there are various controlling agents who work, who are in charge of all the ingredients of material nature, who basically supply all of our necessities of life. But we need to, we need to see that uh, there is an arrangement within this material world where everything is being supplied to mankind, akin to the, the workings of a good government. Uh, if we have a good government... You have, of course, the executive head, the president or king or whatever nomenclature may be used, the chieftain. And under him, there are subordinate personalities who, who are in charge of various things uh, within a government. So you have your Department of Defense, the Department of Treasury, the Department of uh, youth, uh, you know, uh, Human Resources, uh, the Health Department. The military department, of course, let's not forget that, this modern age. Uh, that's the biggest department in all the governments of the world, practically speaking. Similarly, in the administration of this material universe, the Lord also has his subordinate gods. The sun god, the moon god, the Indra, uh, the king of heaven who supplies uh, 
water. And these various demigods, of course, uh, also because they're in a position of control of facility, uh, they can be approached. And they can be approached in a, in a worshipful way and uh, benedictions can be taken through their worship. Now, all the details of the worship of the demigods is provided also in the Vedas. The Veda gives full knowledge of how to function within this material world. Of course, as devotees, we concentrate on that portion of the Vedas uh, that is the cream of Vedic knowledge, that knowledge that brings us to the topmost understanding of our spiritual nature and our relationship with the Supreme. So we're not very much interested in those other portions of the Vedas which deal with, uh, you know, elevation to heavenly planets or uh, getting a good wife or uh, we've heard of different Kama Sutra, you know, how to enjoy lustfully in this world. We've heard of these, but uh, these portions of the, the Vedas, as devotees, we don't take a lot of interest in. But in the Vedas, all knowledge is given, and knowledge of worship of the demigods is there. As pointed out in the purport, Prabhupada says, if you're, if you're ill, you can worship the sun god, and your illness can be, you can be relieved of your illness. Uh, if you want a, uh, if you want a, uh, a good wife, uh, you can uh, worship uh, Uma, uh, the wife of Lord Shiva, and if you offer the prayers nicely, you know, you'll get a, get a good wife. Similarly, you can get a good husband. I think you, uh, the gopis worship Katyayani in order to get Krishna as their husband. And of course, that's in a different light than this. Still, the, the idea is there. And we also saw, even, even during Krishna's manifest pastimes, Prakata um, uh, pastimes, we even see that uh, uh, it was a custom. It was a custom uh, that uh, once a year, uh, even the inhabitants, the cowherds of Raja, they would worship uh, Indra to show their appreciation for the nice harvest. And we see in various cultures that's there. Although the nomenclatures may be different, they worship uh, in order to be thankful uh, for the abundance that's come to them. That is what Lord Krishna is speaking to here. The worship of those lesser gods that is taken on by less intelligent people that don't know to go to the source. And Krishna explains, and Prabhupada elaborates in his purports in these few verses, the exact nature of this demigod worship. And one thing that that's really important that we see in the purports that, that comes out from these verses is Krishna is, the Supreme Lord is the ultimate controller in all respects. But it's interesting that for those people that want to approach other gods, lesser gods, material gods, understand that generally we can only approach the Supreme Lord himself for spiritual life. But if we have some material desire within this world, wealth, opulence, good health, good wife, long life, and on and on, the list is basically, it's, uh, we can have a real long 
laundry list of how we want to enjoy this world. As soon as we get that one, then we want something else. That's the nature of this world. It's flickering. No matter what, no matter what worship we do, when we obtain that goal, we're never quite satisfied, are we? We still want to go on and, and, and attain something else. Would you say it's dangerous, actually, to worship the demigods? Well, that's what Krishna—that's what Krishna talks to here. Because I, I read articles where you actually hear some heads of state worshiping uh, Ganesh and Shiva and other, you know, uh, versions of demigods. And it's a beginning, it's though, isn't it? Yes. It's a beginning. Yes. <laughs> it's a beginning in that at least they are—they are recognizing that there is higher authority. Mm-hmm. So the Veda, as we've spoken earlier, the Veda, at least by giving us those directions for demigod worship, is breaking us into the fact that there is a way to reciprocate with higher authority. To that end, it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah okay. But Krishna elaborates here that the results of that worship, they're not fully satisfied, they're not, never satisfying to the soul. And the, the fruits are, are limited and, and temporary, just like everything within this material world. But the fact that you're taking instruction from the Veda, you're taking instruction from higher authority, and the fact that you're at least engaging in a, in a process of appreciation for what you're receiving in life, that's a good thing. Because ultimately the hope would be that you would come to appreciate the fact that there is a supreme controller. Now what's interesting in these verses is the fact that Krishna says, of course we know the Supreme Lord controls everything, including the demigods. So he first of all makes the faith of those worshippers strong. And he also gives the demigods, he inspires them to fulfill those desires. And Prabhupada says in the purport, we need to understand that without the Supreme Lord's sanction, not a blade of grass moves. No matter if you're, if you're worshiping a demigod, first of all, the inspiration to perform that worship, where's that coming from? From Krishna. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Sarvasya chaham hridisani vistomatas ritir janam apohanam cha. I am seated in everyone's heart. From me comes remembrance, knowledge, and forgetfulness. The fact that we're given remembrance to know the worship of God, that's coming from Krishna. Also, Krishna is giving that that inspiration to the demigods to fulfill our desires. Independent of Krishna's inspiration, the worshiper can't worship and the supplier of the ingredients for material enjoyment cannot supply. It's a very important point. Now, Prabhupada in the purports of these verses brings out something that's very interesting. First of all, the understanding that Krishna is the inspiration, and also the fact that how, how foolish it is for those demigod worshippers in that they don't know the proper way to receive the best benefit. Why go to a subordinate agent if you can approach the king? Let's say you're in prison. 
you can go to the to the warden of the prison and and, and make some bribe and maybe get out of prison. But what if you can appeal to the king? Not only you to get out of prison, you know, you're completely pardoned of all of your offense, and you can be given an administrative task in the government. The king's that powerful. Not only can he let you out of the prison, he can also give you a good post in the government. So why just go to the warden? Why not go to the king? So similarly, why not go to Krishna? And that's the verse that Prabhupada quotes here from Srimad Bhagavatam. A karma sarva karma va moksa karma udara di. A karma. If you have no material desire, well then worship God. Sarva karma. If you are full of all material desire, I want it all. Worship God. <laughs> or if you just want to be relieved of the miseries of material existence, moksha karma. Give me liberation. I don't want to take birth anymore. I just want relief from the cycle of samsara, repeated birth and death. Then approach Krishna. Why go to some lesser god? Because they don't know also there is someone higher. That's right. And what, what? That's what Prabhupada says in the poor poor. Because they're in the mode of passion and ignorance, they have no knowledge. They have no knowledge. Of course, some may say, well, if I go to Krishna, Krishna's not going to fulfill my material desire because that's going to prolong my suffering in this material world and the Supreme Lord is so considerate of us that he won't fulfill my desire. So although I want to be the most famous rock star on the face of the planet, if I know Krishna, he probably won't give me that. Well, actually, Krishna fulfills all of his devotees' desires. But he does not do it immediately. Because what's he do along the way? He purifies our heart. So he takes longer. <laughs> and once our heart is purified, then he fulfills our desires. Even if it's a material desire. Maybe we don't want this desire Well, then we, let's go back to what we discussed Dhruva Maharaj last week. What happened? He wanted a kingdom better than his father's, better than the best kingdom possible. And he went to Krishna and he worshipped Krishna because that's the instruction he received. But what did he say as soon as Krishna came? I've been worshipping you in order to obtain some broken pieces of glass. But now that I've found the rarest gem, I don't want that. I'll take the gem. But Krishna does also fulfill the desires of his devotees, even if we are so foolish to approach him with some material motivation. But the result may not be as quick. But he also, always, you read in Bhagavatam, no matter what the desire, even Uddhava, Uddhava, in, in associating with the gopis, wanted to have the ability to simply be a plant or a creeper in Vrindavan to get the dust of the gopis' feet so that he could taste the highest ecstatic, loving exchange with Krishna. He actually received that desire and became such a creeper. And that's mentioned in the scripture. 
So no matter what the devotee desires, Krishna fulfills that desire, no matter what it is, ultimately. But he will purify your heart first, so it takes a little longer. But if we're unintelligent, uh, we want it right away, we're too passionate, because what's Krishna go on to say here? What is the nature of those people who go to the demigods? Mm. He makes their face steady in text 21, 22, endowed with their faith. He endeavors to worship a particular demigod and obtains his desires. But in actuality, those benefits are coming from me. Men of small intelligence worship the demigods and their fruits are limited and temporary. Those who worship the demigods go to the planets of the demigods, but my devotees ultimately reach my supreme planet. If we worship a demigod, we're going to gain elevation. But all the demigods, all these sub-gods, are in charge of the facilities of this material world. And what's Krishna talk about What's he say regarding the various planets in this material world? Abrahma Bhuvana Loka. From the highest planet in this material world, Lord Brahma's planet, the Creator's planet, down to the lowest planet, all of them are places of misery wherein repeated birth and death take place. So if we go to the highest planet and live for hundreds of thousands of years in one body, Actually, Brahma's lifespan we can't even imagine. Uh, his one day is uh, 8 billion. His day and night together. Eight, over 8 billion of our, our years. <laughs> his one day, 8 billion years. Unimaginable to have such a lifespan. That's one day, what to speak of. Yeah. So, How many years is he now? 100 years. Yeah. Men of small intelligence worship the demigods and their fruits are limited and temporary. Those who worship the demigods... And just like you said, you just read Prabhupada's book, Easy Journey to Other Planets. Mm -hmm. Here's the key. You want to go to another planet? Worship the demigod. (laughs) Prabhupada's saying in that easy journey, you don't need to make a mechanical arrangement. Why not do it permanently? Because when you go up to some higher planet with your mechanical machine... It's going to run out of fuel and you're going to fall back down again. The unfortunate thing is when we try to make a mechanical arrangement to go to these other planets, first of all, we can't breathe the atmosphere there. So you're wasting your time, essentially. We can't, we don't have the senses, we don't have the senses to perceive what's on that planet. So they think they went to the moon. Well, if they did go to the moon, all well and good, But if they did, why didn't they see the residents of the moon? There's no empty planets. It's not that there's some empty space within this universe. Krishna makes it clear that throughout the universe there are living entities. They don't have the senses to perceive. They can't perceive those living entities. Just like when Krishna advents here. How many people recognize Krishna? Well... The residents of Raja, which came down, and some very few select devotees uh, recognized him as God. Majority of people, they did not recognize Krishna. Ata Sri Krishna Namadi Nabavedgrahamindriya. With these material senses, we can't perceive the Lord. We have to develop transcendental senses, transcendental vision, transcendental hearing, transcendental tasting. Then we can 
you can begin to perceive the Lord's presence. And it begins with the tongue. Sevan Muki Hejivadao. The tongue we begin. We vibrate. Hare Krishna. We can begin to feel Krishna. Oh, this is nice. I feel something here that's not material. This vibration. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna, Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Rama. I vibrate this. This isn't material. There's something here. We begin, we taste prasadam. There's definitely something in the prasadam. It's not normal food. <laughs> Krishna, in verse 23, he talks of men with small intelligence that worship the demigods. Men of small intelligence who what? Who want material to fulfill material desire. But then he really makes a deep dig. So these are men of small intelligence. What's the Sanskrit word there? Alpha made a sum of those of small intelligence. Now, remember that. Small intelligence. Go on to verse 24. What does Krishna say there? Doesn't say small intelligence. His own he knots it up enough. Yeah. The unintelligent who do not know me perfectly think that I the Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna was impersonal before and have now assumed this personality due to their small knowledge. They do not know my higher nature which is imperishable and supreme. Who's Krishna talking about in this verse? Who has no intelligence? The Mayavadis. The people that actually think the Supreme is not a person. At, they feel that if the Supreme takes an embodiment just so that we can... I don't even know why. Why would he come and take a body? But anyway, they, their basic point is, they think, well, if the Supreme may take a body, because the Vedas speak of uh, taking a form, but immediately they think, well, if he takes a material form, he's material. Because ultimately, spirit is spirit. It's all one. It's all this great spiritual energy, and we're all part of it. And the ultimate issue, we give up our personality. They feel this class of men. Not small-minded men. Not small-minded men that simply want to enjoy this material world. That's okay. At least you have some intelligence. There's a little bit of intelligence here. These people Krishna's talking of, they have no intelligence. Because they ultimately give up all understanding of their true spiritual nature. In the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna begins with the most elemental points of spiritual consciousness. Never was there a time when you did not exist, nor I, nor all these kings, nor in the future shall any of us cease to be. As the embodied soul continually passes in this body, from boyhood to youth to old age, at the time of death, we pass into another body. We never give up our personality. We never give up our individual existence. Now, you can throw your intelligence away and give up your true spiritual personality to some misdirected, unintelligent concept of spirituality. 
But that doesn't make it so. Simply accepting this impersonalist philosophy does not make it a reality. Rejecting the Supreme Lord's personality doesn't mean that he has no personality either. It simply means you have gone, you have actually descended below in the Lord's eyes. Krishna's speaking here, so this is his conclusion. In his, according to his vision of things, you're, you are, you are, you have no intelligence and the people that simply want to exploit my energy, my material energy for their enjoyment, well, at least they have some intelligence. So it's very interesting how Krishna has, has really, he's, he's, he's got to the core again, bringing Arjuna back to an understanding and we're eternal and we're eternal individuals. And this is such, such a concept that it's, if you look even to the fact when we are offering our prayers to our spiritual master, Prabhupada, of course, gave us the prayers that we would chant to him and his prayers in the second verse. Nirvasesa sunyavadi paschacca desatamade. Prabhupada, coming in the line of Lord Chaitanya, Every time we bow down and, and offer our respects to him for the wonderful uh, rendering in English of all these great spiritual literatures, uh, to coming to the Western world and going to throw so much hardship to give pure unalloyed devotional service to humanity. I mean, what a personality. What a great spiritual personality that in his prayers that we say hundreds of times, Nirvasesa Sunyavadi, I have come here to wipe out this foolish consciousness of impersonalism and voidism. It's that important. And throughout Srimad Bhagavatam and Bhagavad Gita, again and again, and the reason is that even though we think, well, now I've got it. I'm a person. God's a person. We never learn our, you know, we never lose our individuality. This impersonalism is so, so deeply rooted in society, in Kali Yuga. If we look out and we look at all, so many varied spiritual practitioners, so many varied spiritual movements, uh, uh, religions, I guess you would call them. Unfortunately, the fact that knowledge of developing a personal loving relationship with the Lord over and above trying to enjoy this material world is not stressed. Even you take uh, the Christian tradition. What is their focus? Their focus is not on developing that loving relationship with God, except for a select few. Their primary focus is, give me my daily bread and take my sins away so I can go on with my lifestyle. Where's that love? Where is, where is actually that relationship that we can come into with the Supreme that will force us 
due to its sweetness to give up everything in material life and give up this suffering of repeated birth and death. Until we develop a higher taste of true spiritual enjoyment, what is the question of giving up a lower taste? We're not, we're not built that way. So Krishna is the supreme enjoyment. We're his tiny, fragmental part and parcel. What's our nature? We want to enjoy naturally. He enjoys immensely. We want to enjoy a little bit. <laughs> Actually, we want to enjoy immensely too. That's the nature of this world. He gives us this world so we can, oh, okay. You don't want to enjoy with re, in a loving relationship with me, but you want to enjoy unlimitedly without me? Here, go for it. Of course, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. You're, it, you aren't matter. You're not the body you're going to have here. You are my eternal associate. You are my eternal lover. That's never going to be, that's never going to be taken away from you as a soul. But if you want me to throw the veil of Maya over you and give you the illusion that you can be king of the world and enjoy independent of me, fine. If that's what you want here, I can give you. So we're here. This is the material world. That's why we're here. And that's why we're going to stay here until we turn to Krishna. And simply taking up this unintelligent concept that we're just spiritual energy and particularly what really upsets the Vaishnavacharyas, those teachers who have come to give us this topmost level, what really upsets them is this is this concept of Mayavad philosophy that is so that modern society is so steeped in today? Read it again and again. It's there, Mayavad, Mayavad, Mayavad. It's like wow, I, I I get it. No, we don't get it. We don't get it that Krishna is a person, that he is the most beautiful, the most powerful the wealthiest, the most knowledgeable, the most famous, and the most renounced person. He's a person. And he's so much a person. One other thing that really came and jumped out to me in reading these verses tonight is just imagine, we don't realize how much Krishna is in touch with us continually. Even if we have material desires and we approach his delegated agents within the material world to fulfill those desires, the demigods, even though we approach he's the one that's in our heart watching what we want and fulfilling that desire by first making our faith strong in those gods and then inspiring those gods to fulfill our desire. So on both ends... Without Krishna, the demigods can't give us anything. They don't own anything. Krishna owns everything. Now, once in a while, and I'll finish on this note, once in a while the demigods get a little bit carried away with themselves. And they can actually forget who Krishna really is. One such demigod was Lord Indra. 
When Krishna appeared in Vraja, when he came with his loving associates and manifest his pastimes for all humanity to take advantage of. As a small child, he went to his father, who was, as we were talking earlier, they have an annual harvest celebration. And during that annual harvest celebration, they worship Indra. And Krishna argued with his father, just to play a trick. He's the supreme trickster also. Just to play a little trick, he, he said, well, what is this worship? And uh, he argued with his father, the philosophy of karma mimamsa. Well, come on, everything comes according to karma. You don't need to worship anybody. If you do good works, you get good results. If you do bad works, you get bad results. So it's all karma. Everything's karma. Well, we know from studying Bhagavad Gita it's a little bit more than just karma, although karma does play a major role there. There are higher authorities that are constantly... Believe me, if we just had to deal with the karma, the cards are stacked against us in this material world. Walking from here to the kitchen, how many living entities am I going to kill? That's going to be a lot of karma. My gosh, how many births am I going to have to take so that they can squash me? I mean, really, karma is, the, the cards are stacked against us. But anyway, <laughs> leaving that aside, the karma of philosophy, to make a long story short, or uh, we'd be here till tomorrow morning discussing this. But karma Mamsa, Krishna's arguing with his father, is simply a young boy, five years old. He's saying, well, we don't need to worship this Indra. We don't need to have this harvest celebration in his honor because really... Everything comes from our karma. So we work well, we get a good result. And really, if you look at it, this Govardhan Hill here gives us all the grass that our cows eat. We get the grass, the cows eat the grass, we get the milk, and we're, we're you know, we're vices, and we live off these milk products, this agriculture. Uh, so basically, the, the hill is providing us, we don't need to worship Indra. He actually talked his father out of, out of worshiping Indra, and got him to worship Govardhan Hill. Of course, Indra is Krishna's dear servant, but he got a little bit upset, and he actually forgot the Supreme's position. Didn't know who he was. Didn't recognize that Krishna actually came down and was playing the part of a human being. So uh, he, he became upset, and he started to just pour down rains torrential rains and uh, Krishna of course a boy of five years old he picked up Govardhan Hill and put all the residents of Vrindavan under it and saved them and uh, then Krishna Indra realized oh my gosh because he saw as soon as the rain drop fell they, they dried up Krishna had used his power and, uh, and who can what boy of five years old can pick up such a huge mountain and give shelter to all of his devotees. Uh, this must be, God, imagine, imagine if, oh my gosh, I really made a mistake here now. This is God. This is my Lord I, I've offended by, by sending these rain clouds. Anyway, Krishna was so kind to him that he let him uh, uh, stealthily meet him in some secluded place and uh, and he forgave him for his offense. 
So even the demigods, sometimes they forget their position in this world. So we should be careful not to forget ours. Any questions? Comments? Corrections? Oh, um, I read in Nectar of Devotion um, that's I, even even though, yes, you uh, you worship Krishna, there's also like a little sub-thing, don't forget to offer obeisances to the demigods too because they can provide for you. Like, I'm just... What is that? <laughs> just well, with devotees, them. as devotees... As we spoke earlier, when we were talking about uh, you know Vaishnav pranams, what's the position of all the demigods? They're no more than living entities. They're Vaishnavs. They're all Krishna's servitors. They recognize Krishna. Anybody that recognizes Krishna, that we offer obeisance to. So we're not neglectful of the demigods, although we do not worship the demigods. Once in a while, you'll see a devotee. In a certain circumstance, they may worship a demigod for advancing their devotional service. The gopis wanted Krishna as their, as their uh, husband, so they were worshiping, you know, the demigod Katyayani to, to receive Krishna as their husband. And then Krishna played a trick on them, but we'll leave that for another time. He seems to be always playing a prankster. <laughs> Krishna Vadaya Joker. Any other questions? Thank you so very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.